If you have your Bible, you can turn to Acts 14. Acts chapter 14. We've been coming through the book of Acts together. We're at Acts 14, verse 21 through 28 today. Uh, there's a study guide around. There's two sides on it, but uh, the side you should be on is where it says Acts 14, verse 21 through 28 at the top. If you see any extras around you, you might could grab those. Anybody in the back need some? Need a study guide? Or anybody around you need a study guide? All right. I think they're pretty evenly distributed. All right, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Please pray with me. Father, we want to move into this time with reverence to you, reverence to your word. We desire to know your will. Holy Spirit, we desire to hear your voice. So please help us, God. We're, we're your church. We belong to you. We want to be. We want to be moved by you through your word. So God, please help us. God, I pray that you would allow a holy sobriety to come down on us now. Enable us, God. Your word tells us to incline our ears and hear. Enable us, God, to do that, to lean in and hear your word. Lord, throughout history, you have used weak preachers and weak minds, God, to proclaim your word and hear your word. And I just pray, God, that you would do that again this morning. We come before you in weakness, God. We come to you in weakness and in need of you. Thank you so much, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And I want to say, starting off, that we, we need uh, this passage of Scripture this morning. Uh, we need to hear this from God this morning, this passage of Scripture from His Word. I, I was thinking about the things that God has done in this church. And I think many of you could say with me that you're thankful for that. Uh, just thankful for the way God has, um, has united us together in love. Uh, there's a spirit of unity, a family-like unity that God has created at Grace Community Church. And I'm so thankful for that. And it's, and it's obviously not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. We're not. Um, but we have wept, wept together. We have rejoiced with one another. Uh, we have uh, we've suffered with one another. Uh, there's been a lot of things that have been there that God has helped us as a church to be a family to, to walk these things out together. We've, we've forbeared each other a lot. Um, I think you, everybody would agree with that. We've forbeared and forgiven one another. We've had to do a lot of that. And so God has worked this unity in our midst that is sweet to my soul and I hope it's sweet to your soul as well. And I want you to think about what does God think about that? God creates it and then what does he think about it? And Psalm 133 says how good and how pleasant it is when people of God dwell together in unity. How good and pleasant it is. And then it goes on to say it's like the oil poured out on the high priest or like 
uh, the dew coming down on Mount Hermon. It's like that. He says, at this place of unity, God pours out his blessing life forevermore. And so it's a sweet, sweet thing, I think, in the sight of God when this has created a family like unity and love. And it's a unity not just over the things of the world, but it's a unity over the things that matter the most. The person of Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, a unity around him. And I'm convinced that if we catch a vision that God has for us, a vision for uh, the resources we have, how to spend our energy, how to spend our resources together as a family. If we catch that vision and we, we uh, pick up what the prophets of old had, they said they preached that burden of the Lord. If we pick up that burden together, I think just like it says in Psalm 133, that God at that place will pour out his, ble- his blessing, life forevermore. And I would say even in a weak group of people, a weak, little, small and insignificant church like Grace Community Church. God seems to take some sort, y'all know this, take some sort of delight in taking the weak things of the world and using it to show himself strong. So I believe God wants to do that. And, and I don't think it's that, that we, we have never you know, caught the vision that God has for us. I don't, I don't think it's that we've never picked up the burden of the Lord of the last five years as a church. It's not that I don't think that... that, that That we've had that from God. But here's what I do believe. That God can make his vision for us as as a church. He can bring it into razor sharp focus. And I believe that's what he wants to do through this passage of scripture this morning. I believe he wants to bring the mission of God for Grace Community Church into razor sharp focus. So again, I don't think it's that he hadn't blessed us over the last five years. I don't think it's that... uh, uh, that he hasn't put his hand on us is not that. But all we to ask God, God, give us more of that. God, give us more of your blessing. That Psalm 67 type blessing where he says, God, bless us. And God, let your face shine upon us that your name might be known in all the earth and your saving power among all nations. God, bless us for that purpose. All we not to ask him for more and more and more of that. And I believe that this passage of scripture that we're in will we'll, we'll produce in us a thirst to ask God for that, a thirst to long for more and more of that sort of blessing from God. I think churches often lose sight of this vision. Uh, they, they put the burden down, they lose sight of it, and churches often get comfortable. They just get comfortable in where they are. And I believe that this passage of Scripture will help us that five years from now, five more years of being a church, or even 50 more years of being a church, or or whatever, even after we're dead and gone in the generations that follow us, that God can use this passage of Scripture so that we would not lay the burden down. So we, would, we wouldn't drop the vision, we wouldn't get comfortable, but that we would go after this for all of our days, the mission that God has for Grace Community Church. And I believe this passage of Scripture can and stir us up in it this morning. So let's so so please, I'm about to read it, verse 21 through 28. And I want to encourage you to lean in. Let nothing distract you, nothing going on around you right now, but leaned in to hear the words that are from God. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, 
encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they came down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. So let's talk for a minute just about the plain sense of what we see here, okay? Just on the surface, what do we see? If you remember, Acts 13 and Acts 14 is a record for us of the first missionary journey. The church at Antioch, the Syrian Antioch, a local church, they send out Paul and Barnabas on this first missionary journey. And we get record of it in Acts 13 and Acts 14. They send them out in 13, 1 through 3. They, the first place they go to is an island called Cyprus. They preach the gospel there. Souls are saved. They, they take a ship. They, they went to the island of Cyprus. I take a, a ship again, a boat again, over to what is modern-day Turkey. They land in Pisidian Antioch, and they preach the gospel and make disciples there. They go from there. They go to a, a place called uh, Iconium, and they make disciples there. Then they go to a place called Lystra, and they make disciples there. And they go to a place called Derby. So you got these different places that they're hitting on this missionary journey. They're sent out by the church at Antioch. Now what we have in verse 21 through 23 is, is what I titled there on your study guide, Mission Complete. Mission Complete, because what we see here is they preach the gospel, make disciples in all those different cities. Then after they went to those cities, they're going to return back through those same cities where they're believers now. And they're going to strengthen the souls of those disciples. And in every single place where disciples have been made, they, they appoint elders for the church in those places. Now, once they appoint elders for the church and they fast and pray and commend them to the Lord, then they begin to head back to their home church in Antioch, in the Syrian Antioch. So their mission is complete and they're headed back home, which brings us to the mission report in verses 24 through 28. The mission report is where they go back. We get some geographical details in verse 24 through 26 about them going back to Antioch. They get back in Antioch and it says when they get there at that church, they gather all the saints together and they're going to hear from Paul and Barnabas, these missionaries, they're going to hear what God did on this first missionary journey. And it ends with Paul and Barnabas staying there for a good while. It says not for a little time. They stay there for a good while with the church at Antioch. So we've got our scripture here, kind of plain sense on the surface. I want you to think about this for a minute. Is there such thing as a biblical mission strategy? Is there such a thing as a biblical mission strategy? In other words, when we think about the Great Commission, think about it. The Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go, go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. Teaching them to observe all things I commanded you. Is there, is there a biblical strategy for fulfilling the Great Commission? In other words, as the church, 
We, we take this on as a great commission church. How do we live this thing out? How do we go after, how do we go after living out together the great commission? I believe right here in Acts 14, we get a really good picture of how we do this. In fact, uh, the, the closest place in all the Bible where that phrase in Matthew 28, make disciples, where we see that phrase show up again in the clearest way is right here in Acts 14, 21, where it says they preach the gospel and they made many disciples. So how do we live out this great commission? How do we go after this as a church? And this passage of scripture gives us insight in how to do this. And this is important. Now, us as a church, I don't know if you've noticed this, talking to people, ask, you know, as, as you fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ, God has been stirring us up about the great commission in this church. I think through the word of God, through us going through the book of Acts together, God has been stirring souls of the saints. Not only souls of people to, that, that desire to go to the nations and, and put themselves even in harm's way to take the gospel. God's been stirring up that desire all over this church. But not only that, stirring up the people that would stay here and be cinders. They would hold the rope as others go down into the well. God has been stirring up this church. And, and, and this is a perfect passage of scripture for us to give us some razor sharp clarity on how do we fulfill this mission? What do we do to fulfill this mission? So, so as we dig a little deeper, I want you to catch the vision. I want us all together to pick up the burden. The burden that's laid out for us here for living out the Great Commission. Okay. So let's start with mission complete. Verse 21 through 23. Now, now, as we see them complete this mission in verse 21 through 23 and head back home, what are some things we can take away? And I want to put before you, I want to put before you three great commission directives for us. Okay, so what can we take away? We see them completing the mission and sort of a summary statement of what they've done. And I want to put before you three Great commission directives from this passage of scripture. The first one's going to be proclaim the gospel, make disciples. It's directive number one. Second one will be strengthen the souls of the disciples. You see that in verse 22. And the third one will be establish churches. And we'll see that in verse 23. So preach the gospel, make disciples, strengthen the souls of the disciples, and establish churches. That's not overly complicated, right? It's not, at least it ought not to be overly complicated so do that in all nations of the earth grace community church do that among all nations preach the gospel make disciples strengthen the souls of the disciples establish churches in all nations on the earth including our own do that that's the idea so let's dig a little deeper let's ponder each one of these great commission directives so the first great commission directive proclaim the gospel make disciples you see it in verse 21 when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, we'll stop there. They had preached the gospel to that city in Derby and they made many disciples. Now, this is the same thing they did in all those cities. They did it in Lystra. They did it in Iconium. They did it in the city in Antioch. They preached the gospel, made disciples in all these places. Here's what we can take away from this. Christians are a people with a message. We're a people with a message. It's, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christians are a people with the most beautiful message that has ever entered human ears. Christians are a people with the most powerful message that ever has been on human or angelic tongues. The most powerful message you have ever heard. The most beautiful message. We carry this message as Christians. That's what we do. They preached the gospel. The gospel is the good news. 
That word gospel means good news. Do you understand the bad news so that you might understand the good news? The bad news is this, that there is a judgment coming. Well, why does that matter that God is going to judge everyone? Because all of us have rebelled against the God that's going to judge us. And all of us deserve to burn in hell forever, punished by this God. He is just and he is good and he is right to pour out his wrath on people like me and people like you. That's the bad news that helps you understand this glorious message of the good news that they carry. This message about Christ, that Jesus has come, that Jesus the rescuer has come, that he gave his life for our justification. That he went to the cross so that we could be adopted, the enemies of God could be adopted as sons and daughters. That he bled, that he died, as we remember just a moment ago, so that we could have eternal life. This is good news, and this is the message that Christians carry. We carry this message, this good news. And so it says here in verse 21, they made many disciples. How did they do that? How did they make many disciples? They heralded this good news. They proclaimed this gospel. This is how they made disciples. I want you to think about this for a minute. This is the reason I put these two things together. Your first uh, Great Commission directive is, is preach the gospel slash make disciples because this is how you make disciples. What's a disciple? We know from Acts eleven twenty six, a disciple is the same thing as a Christian. It's a Christian. So they proclaim the gospel, the message that turns enemies of God into Christians, enemies of God into friends. They proclaim that message and made disciples. Disciples are Christians. According to Acts eleven twenty six. the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. What's a disciple? Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20 tells us a disciple is a baptized learner and follower of Christ. Baptize them, teaching them to obey all things that I commanded you. Say, baptize, learner, and follower of Christ. So they preached. They went in. They carried a message. They preached the message, the gospel of Jesus, that takes enemies of God and turns them, takes unbaptized, ignorant, spiritually ignorant people like us and turns them into learners of Christ. Turns them into baptized followers of Jesus. That's the message they proclaim. And these are the disciples that they made. And so what we see here is a proclamation of the gospel with an aim to convert souls. We see a proclamation of the gospel with an aim to convert souls. In other words, Paul and Barnabas were not just information dumps. Paul and Barnabas weren't there just to give them a little food for thought. They were there to herald a message and move them to turn from their sin, turn from their idols, and put their hope in the only hope who is Christ. That's the message. That's the kind of message that they proclaim. They gave information, no doubt. In fact, it's, it's glorious information. Think about the information about Jesus. The one who died on the cross and his resurrection and his ascension on high and he rules as king and he's coming back one day. Surely they gave all of that information, but it wasn't just information. It was information to move them to come. Into the kingdom of God. To come into the family of Christ. Now, J.I. Packer, this idea of preaching with an aim to convert. J.I. Packer in his book, um, 
evangelism and the sovereignty of God, he said it like this. Christians are sent to convert. And they should not allow themselves as Christ representatives in the world to aim at anything less. Evangelizing, therefore, is not simply a matter of teaching and instructing and imparting information to the mind. There's more to it than that. Evangelizing includes the endeavor to elicit a response to the truth taught. It is communication with a view to conversion. It's a matter not merely of informing, but, of, but also of inviting. It's an attempt to gain or win or catch our fellow men for Christ. Our Lord depicts it as fishermen's work. I think the clearest place to see that is in Acts 26. Whenever Jesus, uh, Acts 26, Jesus looks, uh, speaking about Paul, and he says something to Paul. He says, Paul, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. For what, Jesus? To open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. I'm sending you there with a message that converts souls. So go preach it with the aim to convert those souls. Preach the gospel and make disciples. So here's the idea. Christians are these gospel-loving people that gather together in local churches like the church at Antioch and they send out gospel heralding messengers to those places that don't have the gospel. This is what Christians are. This is what Christians do. Okay? So, and you'll see this on your study guide. So in light of this first Great Commission directive, in light of this first Great Commission directive, what, what must... What must sending local churches, like the church at Antioch, what must these local churches be? They must be gospel-loving and gospel-defending. Gospel-loving and gospel-defending churches. If not, they'll be, in, they'll be in danger of saving nobody. If they're not gospel-loving and, and defending the gospel, meaning protecting it from false doctrine and heresy, gospel-loving, gospel-defending people. If not, they're not going to save anybody. If not, they'll be in danger of sending nobody out. Or worse than that, churches could send out people with a puny little gospel that does not exalt Jesus. And that's a problem. It's a massive problem. This is what local churches must be. What about missionaries? In light of this first Great Commission directive, what must missionaries be? They must be gospel experts. Gospel experts. In other words, the, the nations need the gospel. They don't need you. They need the gospel. They don't need more humans. They don't need more flesh. They need Christ. And him crucified and Him risen. Would you think about the state of modern missions for just a, just a minute? Just the state of so much that's going on around me and you today. Think about this. That if you could catch most of the missionaries that are about to head out on the mission field. I mean, they're about to get on the plane and, and you stop them right there just before they get on the plane. And say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I want to have a gospel conversation with you before you go. What kind of stuff do you think you'll encounter? How do you think it'll go if you take these missionaries about to go? So many of them. You say, I want to have a gospel conversation with you before you go. Would, would you be running into men and women who love the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who have seen visions of the glory of Jesus and his death and his resurrection and all that he's done? Is that what you would run into in modern day? 
Would you run into men and women that could open up their Bibles and pour over page after page after page of gospel, excited gospel explanation? Was that who you would run into? Or would you run into people, men and women that are just out to fulfill some emptiness in their own soul, some need to do a good work? Missionaries are to be gospel experts. Let's go to the second great commission directive. Second great commission directive is strengthen the souls of the disciples. Look at again at verse 21. Right in the middle of it, it says they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Strengthening the souls of the disciples. So these missionaries. They go back in the places they've already been to. They revisit those cities. Why? Why would they revisit these cities? It's not the easiest route. Geographically, you can look at it on a map. To get back home to Antioch and Syria, it's not the easiest route. But they go back. They backtrack to these cities. It's not even the safest route. Every city that they went back to, they had been persecuted. In one city, Paul had been stoned near to death and dragged out of the city. And you're going to go back to those cities? Why? Why would these missionaries do this? What we see here is because there's brothers and sisters in Christ there. There's brothers and sisters in Christ there. And Paul and Barnabas want to strengthen these brothers and sisters in Christ. So they go back into these cities. Now, I love this phrase. Strengthening the souls of the disciples. Strengthen the soul disciples. You know, all disciples need to be strengthened. You know that? All disciples need to be strengthened. Every single disciple, all of us and all of them, all disciples need to, need to have our affections for Jesus deepened. We need to have the knowledge of Christ in His Word broadened out for us. All of us need that. All of us need to grow more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Disciples always need strengthening. We're in this sanctification process, all of us who are in Christ. Disciples need to be strengthened. And so Paul and Barnabas are a good example. They're a good example for us, not just of men who realize that they need to be strengthened. But they have actually turned the corner to say, I want to strengthen others. Not only do I need to be fed, but I want to help feed others. And that's a big moment in a Christian's life. I feel like I've seen it over and over and over again. Where a young Christian is saved and zealous for the Lord, realizing this Christian, realizing he needs to grow and be sanctified and become more like Christ and affections need to deepen. And a Christian realizes that. And in that moment where it's like a light bulb goes off and they say, you know what? I'm supposed to be helping my brothers and sisters with that exact same thing. And they begin to do that with some intentionality. I want to help my brothers and sisters in Christ grow. Paul and Barnabas are a good example for us of that. Now, this Great Commission directive is probably the most downplayed one of all. Okay, out of the three, this is probably the most downplayed directive. Right? You hear people, you know, they aspire to be evangelists. They aspire to be church planners. But how often do you hear people aspiring to be disciple strengtheners? That's what I want to be, a disciple strengthener. And this tends to be the most downplayed of, of all three of these Great Commission directive. So what I want to do is I want you I want to help you see the prominence of this this directive. I want you to see the importance of it, the prominence of it, of this whole work of strengthening the souls of the disciples. So 
couple ways I'll do that. A few ways I'll do that. One, think about the, the uh, discomfort that Paul and Barnabas are willing to endure just to be this. Strengthen the souls of the saints. That's some promise, right? That's pretty important. Like they're willing to trace back through those cities where they've had rocks thrown at them in order to kill them. Where they've been kicked out of cities. They're willing to go back through just to strengthen them. Doesn't that put some importance there? Well, what about this? If you go to Acts 15, if you look over to Acts 15 at the very end of that chapter, this whole heart to strengthen the souls of the disciples, this is what sparked the second missionary journey. This sparked the second missionary journey. Look at it in verse chapter 15. I'm going to look at verse 36 for a minute. Now, as we get ready to read this, think about this. What, what's, what would you think sparked this, the second missionary journey? What, what thoughts are running through Paul and Barnabas' mind as they think about going out again for the glory of Christ? I mean, some big you know, revelation. What is it? What, what, what's on their mind? And look at this in verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we, where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Wasn't that mundane? We just want to see how, how they are. So this question of how are, those, how are those brothers and sisters doing? That question sparked the second missionary journey. I wonder how they are. I want to know how they are. And then, and then look down at verse 41. And he went through Syria and Cilicia. He goes right back to those same churches already planted. He went back through there strengthening. There's that word. Strengthening the churches. Strengthening the churches. And after he went through there and did that, here's what it says in 16.5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in number daily. You see the prominence in this. That they're going back through to strengthen the souls. This strengthen the souls of the disciples was the spark for the second missionary journey. What about the third missionary journey? Go to Acts 18. You can almost miss it. Acts 18 verse 23. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia. Excuse me. Stop there. Let me back up to verse 22. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up, greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. So that's the end of the second missionary journey. He went back to Antioch. Here's the beginning of the third missionary journey. Listen. After spending some time there at the church at Antioch, he departed... And went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia. Same, same region, same area. What's he doing? Strengthening all the disciples. There's a prominence here. Think about when he's in prison. What's he doing? He's writing letters to the saints. He's writing letters to the churches. All the letters we have in our New Testament are evidence of the prominence of strengthening the souls of the saints. Strengthen, strengthen the souls of the disciples. There's a prominence here. In this directive. So, therefore, so in your study guide here, therefore, in light of this second Great Commission directive, what must a Great Commission local church be? What must a local church be? Not only defenders of the gospel and lovers of the gospel, but they must be disciple strengtheners. They must be disciple strengtheners. Disciple strengthening churches. Send out missionaries that know what it's like to strengthen the souls of the disciples. Okay? So members, 
Members of Grace Community Church, has your soul been strengthened? Is your soul being strengthened by the brothers and sisters in your church around you? You're being strengthened. And have you come to that place? Have you turned that corner to where not only you're being strengthened, but you see this need that I want to strengthen my brothers and sisters so that all over this church, there's this whole effect of strengthen one another in Christ, help one another grow, spark one another's affections for Christ, open one another's minds to knowledge of the word. Is, is that the mindset? And I want you to be encouraged to have that mindset. So that's what a local church must be in light of this great commission directive. What about missionaries? What must a missionary be? Not only a gospel expert, but they must be able to strengthen the souls of the disciples. They must be able to do that. It's part of what they're there for. They must be able to strengthen the souls of the disciples. Now, same kind of idea. If you could take all the missionaries, modern day, and right before they get on that plane, right before they, they're headed out to their... Their nation, their unreached people group, wherever they're going. And you can just stop them. You can say, wait a minute, hold on. And, and you got a chance to talk with them. And, and even maybe, uh, for lack of a better term, test their ability to strengthen the souls of the disciples. What if you got a chance to do that? What would, you, what would you find? What would you come across? Would you come across people, men and women, that can take up God's word and use it to encourage the souls of the saints? Is that what you would come across modern day with most missionary endeavors? Would you come across men and women with experience of, of, of encouraging the saints in their local church or the believers around them so that they can do it there? Listen, if they're not, if a missionary or, or prospective missionary is not strengthening the souls of the, of the disciples here, what makes us think they'll do it there? And the reality is, is that they won't. They must have the ability to do that. Do they know how to go to the throne of grace, these missionaries. Can I go to the throne of grace and, and, and intercessory prayer, cry out to God on behalf of brothers and sisters in Christ that they might grow, that they might increase in their love for Jesus? Can they do that? Disciple strengtheners. Now, before we move on to the third directive, let me mention something quickly. Look back at verse 22. Acts 14, 22. He gives a specific here. It says, strengthening the souls of the disciples. And then here's the specific. Couldn't have given us anything about how Paul and Barnabas strengthened them. Couldn't have given us anything, but here's what it gives us as a specific. Encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, why this specific? Out of everything he could have said about strengthening the souls of the disciples, why does he say exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying you must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God? Why this specific? Because this is so foundational for all Christians. This is so foundational. Tribulation will come. Persecution will come. Hardship will come. Because of the world, because of the flesh, because of the devil, it will come. When you become a Christian, you are set at odds with the world. You're set at odds with your own flesh. And you get a demonic bullseye on your back. Tribulation will come as a Christian. And so what he's telling, what he encourages them is you must be able to break through walls, to bust through walls of tribulation and continue in the faith. And if you don't, if you don't. You'll be like that second 
soil and the parable of the sowers that Jesus talked about. Remember the second soil? It says that they immediately received the word with joy. Immediately they sprung up quick and received the word with joy. But as soon as the sun came up, tribulation comes just as sure as the sun. And as soon as the sun came up, they just withered away. And they were no more. So it's foundation to all Christians. Keep going. Press on. Press on in the faith. Don't stop. Let nothing stop you. Keep moving forward, Paul and Barnabas say to these disciples and these in these different cities. Let's go to the third Great Commission directive. Third Great Commission directive is verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So before these, before these missionaries went home, what did they do? They appointed elders. In every church, in all these places where there's believers gathered together to church, they appointed elders in every church before they went home to Antioch, to their home church. Now, I think one thing that should hit your mind here is, is uh, did he say church? Uh, where did church come from here? We're talking about the gospel being preached, people being saved, and all of a sudden you got this thing, and it says there's a church. How did churches get into these places? Well, this is how it works, right? They preach the gospel. Disciples are made through the proclaiming of the gospel. Strengthen those disciples. They gather together in their local church. Isn't that complicated? Where these churches come from? If you're looking at an unreached people group and there's no church there, how do you go from no church to church there? How do you do that? You preach the gospel, make disciples, gather them together to a local church. This is where church comes from and this idea and I think that's foreign to us we live in uh, what I like to call the the if you build it they will come church planning model you know how you plan a church well it has nothing to do with preaching the gospel make disciples just build just if you build it they'll come build the building get the programs together invite folks to come in they'll come in that's playing church right and right here how do they show up they preach the gospel make disciples through the through God's work the church is built the church is built in these places so this should, this should help you answer the question. What does church planning have to do with the Great Commission? What does church planning have to do with the Great Commission? And we see this in the book of Acts, right? The, the Great Commission, it, Jesus told his disciples, go into the world, make disciples of all nations. He said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. That's what you're going to be. He told them that before he ascended on high. He told them that. And then when you see it lived out in the book of Acts, what do we see? Churches are popping up everywhere. So apparently there's a connection between the Great Commission and planning churches. That's what we see here. This is, the, this is how it fits together. Jesus said uh, uh, two things along the lines of the mission here. Listen to them. Matthew 28, go make disciples of all the nations. Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church in the gates of Hades. We're not saying against it. How do these go together? This is what he's doing. He's building his church. Go make disciples. And he's building his church through that. And churches are planted all over the place here. So, great commission fulfillment involves gospel proclamation, disciple strengthening, and the establishing, the establishing of local churches among all people groups. Now, 
When I say that third directive, establishing a local church, in what way did, did these missionaries establish the local church? Now, of course, they, they established them by strengthening the disciples, right? But what else did they do? What did they do to establish the local church here? And, and what it says, it says in verse 23, they appointed elders in every church. They appointed elders in every church. So, elder. What, what is that? What's an elder? An elder, biblically speaking, in the New Testament is a word that is synonymous to pastor or overseer or Hebrews 13, leader in the local church. This is the same word. So an elder, the qualifications for the elder, pastor, overseer that was being appointed in every one of these churches, the, the qualifications are in 1 Timothy 3, qualifications in Titus chapter 1. But this is what an elder is the same thing, biblically speaking. Same thing as a pastor or an overseer, okay? Now, it says here, they appointed elders, plural, in every one of these churches. So they had a plurality of elders in every local church. They had a plurality of pastors, more than one pastor in every local church. This is the model that's given for us. Here, this is what's laid out. And this is a far cry from what we're used to, what we see all around our culture. Where you just have one elder, but you don't call him that. It's one pastor, and he might have his staff or something, but he's the guy. Okay, but, but right, what we see here is pastors in every local church. And we can see that in other places of the word, too. Um, now, it says they appointed them. How did they establish this church? They appointed these elders. How did they appoint them? Well, we saw something similar in Acts 13, 1 through 3, where they, the church laid hands on Paul and Barnabas and sent them out. They appointed them, laid, their, laid hands on them, sent them out. That's a picture of that. Or if you read 1 and 2 Timothy, Timothy speaks three times about this, this moment in his life where the laying, on of the, the laying on of the hands of the eldership happened in his life, where he was formally appointed to the ministry he was doing. In fact, Timothy himself is in 1 Timothy 5, 22. He's told this. He says, do not. Paul tells Timothy, do not lay hands on anyone hastily. And the idea is in the context of appointing more elders, do not lay hands on, on anyone. Don't be hasty in doing that. This is the appointing. It's the formal appointing of eldership or pastors in this local church. So. Paul and Barnabas here. What did they do? They appointed a plurality of pastors in every local church. Then it says they fasted, prayed, and committed them to God in whom they had believed. And they left. And they left. Now again, on your study guide here. So in light of this third Great Commission directive, what must a Great Commission local church be? What must they be? They must be a healthy church that you wouldn't mind seeing reproduced in the world. Because what are the missionaries going out from them doing? What are they doing? They're going out from the local church with the ultimate end of planning a local church, establishing a local church in the places that they go. So what must the local church be? It must be an example that they don't mind being replicated all over the world. All right, what about missionaries? What must a missionary be? Now, this might sound really strange to some of you, but I want, this, I, want the, I want you to understand this. What must a missionary be in light of this third directive? They must be sound in ecclesiology and church policy. They must be sound in ecclesiology and church policy. Not only 
Must the missionaries be gospel experts, not only able to strengthen the disciples, but they must be sound in ecclesiology, study of the church, and, and church polity, the study of church government, how the church is led and governed. They must be experts in these things. Now we see that right here, right? If that's what they're going to do, think about it. If they're going there to preach the gospel, they must be an expert in the gospel. If they're going there to strengthen the soul of disciples, they must be able to do it. If they're going there to plant healthy churches with healthy leadership, they need to understand these things. Now again, take, take missionaries, modern missions, take missionaries, and right before they get on the plane, again, right? Probably tired of hearing me say that. Right before they get on the plane, right before they go, okay? And they're about to leave, and you stop and say, hey, I want to talk to you for just a minute. Tell me your views of ecclesiology and, and church polity. Now, you get some strange looks, wouldn't you? Now, I do hear, it, 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 listen, sometimes in what we've produced so much in American uh, modern missions movement, so much of it is ignorant of these things, but you can't be. Missionaries must be sound. And he says, this is what they're doing. They're going to herald a gospel that produces local churches and unreached people groups all over the world. So, overview. Before we move to the mission report, an overview is this. What did, the, what did these missionaries leave behind at the, when they left out of Antioch and they came back to Antioch? What did they leave behind? They left behind in these different cities. The gospel was proclaimed. Disciples made and strengthened. And churches planted with healthy leadership. This is what they left behind. So again, overview. What must missionaries be? They must be number one, gospel experts. Number two, able to strengthen other believers. And number three, sound in ecclesiology and church polity. And then what must great commission, overview. What must great commission local churches be? They must be lovers and defenders of the gospel, able to strengthen one another. I love Romans 15, 14. Check out that verse later. Romans 15, 14 on that. Number three, they must be a healthy, replicable <clears throat> local church. Now let's go to the mission report. This is verse 24 through 28. So having completed that work, they head back home. They go back to the home church, okay? And if you read verse 24 through uh, 26a, about the middle of verse 26, you just got details about uh, they went back to Pamphylia, they went back to Perga, which, by the way, where they go, they're just preaching the word everywhere they go, even on the return home. They're doing that, and they're going back to these cities, they make it to Italia, and then once they get there, they sail all the way back to their home, their home church, the church at Antioch. So this is, it just gives you details of their traveling home. Now look at verse 26. I want to focus in on the last part of verse 26. Look at what it says. It says the work which they had fulfilled. The work which they had fulfilled. So what does this mean? It means they went out and did a work. They came back and they had fulfilled this work. Some versions say completed. They completed a work. Some versions say accomplished. They had accomplished a work. That's what they did. A completed work is what these missionaries did. I want to focus on that for just a minute. Okay, so what if I asked you, um, in different people groups or different areas of the world, brothers and sisters in Christ, what is a completed work? What is a fulfilled work? What if I asked you that question? What would be your answer? What's a completed work? Would you say, well, completed work is when the gospel is preached there? When I wasn't the complete, well, is the completed work 
when the gospel's preached there and souls are saved, is that a completed work when disciples are made there? Or is it a completed work when the church is planted? It's a healthy local church, healthy leadership in that church. Is that when the work is complete? And I would argue that, that is, that's the way you should think about it. Think about it like this. So they just said a completed work in Acts 14. So Acts 13 through 14 was a completed work. And what did we see them leave behind? Churches with healthy leadership. That's a completed work. Now, now where else do you see this in the word? That same, same Greek word, completed or fulfilled, you can find in Acts, Acts 19 verse 21. In Acts 19, 21, it's at the very end of his time in, the, in Ephesus. So he's in Ephesus, and he says he completed something in Ephesus, and he left. And what was the thing that he accomplished? What was the thing that he completed in Ephesus? Well, just a little bit, a little bit of digging, you'll see it. The gospel was proclaimed there. Disciples were made and strengthened, and a church was planted with elders. We know there are elders there because of Acts chapter 20, verse 17. So, again, a completed work seems to be the same in Ephesus. All right, what about if you move over to Titus chapter 1? Remember Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, Titus, I wanted you to stay in Crete, in this area of Crete. Here's why I want you to stay there, that you might fulfill what's lacking there. In other words, Titus, something's not complete. Something's incomplete there. What is it? That you might appoint elders in every city. So here we got the same idea. A complete work. The church is planted. The church is established. With local leadership. And the same thing, same Greek word is used over in Romans 15. I'll read this to you. Romans 15, verse 19. It says this. By the power of signs and wonders and by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem, think about geography, from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, you can look that up on your map in the back of the Bible, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, he says, I have fulfilled, same Greek word, completed, accomplished the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So much so that a few verses later he says, there's no work left for me to do in those regions. Now how can he say this? What is a complete work from Jerusalem around about to Illyricum? What is a complete work there? Is it that every soul was saved in that area? Is that what he means? Every soul was saved. And I think you know the answer to that is no. It's not that every soul was saved. In fact, Timothy was told to stay in Ephesus that he might do the work of an evangelist there. So it's not that every soul is saved, but what is it? And I will present to you that from Jerusalem to Illyricum, the gospel had been proclaimed. Disciples had been made. Those disciples had been strengthened and gathered together in the local churches with healthy church leadership. And Paul says, I got to get to Spain now where they don't have the gospel and they don't have the church. Completed, accomplished works. That's the idea that you see here. So again, razor sharp focus of the mission of Grace Community Church. Razor sharp focus. Let us give ourselves fully to completed works in every people group on the planet. We look up and we see all the people groups and we see there are some that do not have churches with healthy leadership and we want to have this razor sharp focus of we want to take it to them there. We want to be used of God to do this. Now, you go to verse 27 and 28. Now, 27, verse 27 and 28, it tells us that this is a whole church thing. This is not just a 
missionary thing. This is not just a missionary sermon. This is a whole church thing. Listen to verse 27 and 28. And when they had arrived, so they show back up, okay, back at the home church in Antioch. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remain no little time with the disciples. So all the church gathers together. So, so the, the mission of God, missions, who is it a priority for? Just for missionaries? This says the whole church is gathered together. What did God do? What we, the, From beginning to end, the church is the one, verse 26, that commended them to the grace of God for the work of the ministry. They're the ones that sent them out to the very end. When they come back, everybody gathers, gathers together and says, let's see what God did. This is a whole church thing. This is some people going down into the well, some people holding the rope, but everybody has scars on their hands. This is a whole church thing as it relates to the mission of God. So, with that in mind, Grace Community Church, do you have scars on your hands? How much is the Great Commission costing you right now? How much is it costing you, this Great Commission? The local church missionary relationship is talked about in other places in the Bible. The local church and missionary relationship. So, 3 John 8 says, we ought to support Men like these so that we might be fellow workers for the truth. That we support them and they go down into the well. And therefore we're fellow workers for the truth. The church at Philippi, the Philippian church, they give us a really good example. You go read uh, Philippians 1. It talks about the partnership between Paul the missionary and the Philippian church. In chapter 4, Paul speaks about this partnership that they had with them and how fruit was abounding to their account for their support of the gospel going to the nations. So we have an example of this local church missionary relationship. Now as we get ready to close, I, I want to read from our Grace Community Church's uh, church covenant. I want to read something from our church covenant. It's there on your study guide if you have one. The very bottom. It's from the second section that was just zoned in on the mission. And I want let this be a reminder to us, okay, of, of this is what we've come together committed to. Let this be sort of a reminder of what we've committed to one another. Look, look at it. Everybody that's joined Grace Community Church, look at this. We will partner together in the gospel by striving with God's help to fulfill, to be faithful to the Great Commission. As good soldiers of Jesus Christ, we will refrain from a civilian lifestyle and strive to finish the mission of our Lord by taking up the evangelistic ministry of reconciliation. We commit to pray fervently for gospel fruit in our city and among the nations. As a local church, we commit to train and send laborers into the all nations harvest. Now, what I want to do very quickly is I just want to highlight a few things, okay? A few points that we can take away, personal takeaways from our commitments in the church covenant and just from the scripture, the scripture that we're in, okay? Five just very, five quick uh, personal takeaways. I, I want you to encourage, to, I, I want to encourage you to think about this as a time of self-reflection. You can look at this on the back side of your sheet you have there. Think about this as a time of self-reflection. Now let me ask you something. What kind of people can do healthy self-reflection? 
healthy self-examination. What kind of people can do that? People that get the gospel. Because here's the deal. We're going to look at all, I'm going to just read these, all five of them quickly. I want to encourage you to take them home and, and, and self-reflect, self-examine on your knees before God alone. I want to encourage you to take it home and do that. But listen to me. What man or woman among us is going to read any of these and say, yep, good there. Any of us? And so here's what you have to do. You, got to, you, you have to love and understand the gospel to be able to do healthy self-examination. Otherwise, you will examine yourself and you'll see your failures and you'll move off into despair. But what I want you to do is examine yourself with the mindset of God. Show us, show us where our, our anxieties are. Show us where we're lacking. And like it says in Psalm 139, lead us in the way everlasting. Lead us forward, O God. I want to encourage you to think about it from that angle. So very quickly, self-reflection question number one. Are you living like a soldier in a great commission war or like a civilian during peacetime? Now, from the church covenant, it's that phrase. As good, remember, it's in, the, it's in the context of missions. As good soldiers of Jesus Christ, we'll refrain from a civilian lifestyle and strive to finish the mission of our Lord. The scripture, 2 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. In other words, a civilian life does not acknowledge that there is a great commission war and therefore they live for the comforts of this life. But a soldier life forsakes the comforts of this life to win the war. Again, I would ask, how much is the great commission war costing you right now? Second question. Are you being faithful? Are you being a faithful evangelistic ambassador for Christ. In the church government, strive to finish the mission of our Lord by taking up the evangelistic ministry of reconciliation. But what about scripture? More importantly, what about scripture? 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Isn't that amazing? God making his appeal to the world through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. Third question. Take these home. Please, on your own, on your knees. Are you praying persistently? Are you praying persistently for gospel fruit in our region and among all nations? Now, the place where we mentioned that in the covenant was we commit to pray fervently for gospel fruit in our city and among the nations. In the scripture, Colossians 4, 2, more importantly, the scripture, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Pray. The mission does not move forward without prayer because it cannot move forward with fleshly ability. The arm of the flesh cannot do it. We need to move the arm of God and he's moved by prayer. Number four, are you committed to training up and sending out missionaries? In the church covenant, we committed, as a local church, we commit to train and send laborers into the all nations harvest. Scripture, I mentioned a moment ago, 3 John verse 8 says, We ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Now, your support of 
missionaries. You're coming in behind them like that. Well, where will that show itself? It shows itself in your prayer for the missionaries. It shows itself in your giving for the sake of the gospel going to all nations. It shows itself just in your care for the church's, the church's role in the Great Commission, the all nations mission that we're on. And number five, this is where I want to stop. Are you trusting God in all of this? Now, are you trusting God? And this is a sweet thing to get to trust in God. And here's where it is in our church covenant. We will partner together in the gospel by striving, listen, with God's help. Why was that put there? Because we need God's help. We're striving with God's help to be faithful to the Great Commission. Now, in the scripture, you can see it back in our passage. Look, at, look again at Acts 14. Look at verse 26. From beginning to end, this has been about God advancing his mission. It says in verse 26, and from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been what? Commended to the grace of God for the work of ministry. The work they had completed. They were commended to the grace of God. As they were on their way out on the first missionary journey, the church did what? Commended them to the grace of God. In other words, you need God's help. You need God's grace. You can't do it on your own. You need God and he'll help you. We commend you to God for this. When they come back to Antioch and they gather all the church together, what do they do? They tell all the cool stories about how great Paul and Barnabas are, right? No. It says in verse 27 what they do. When they arrived and gathered the church together, listen to what they did. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. This is a work of God, a work from God. And that should, that should move us to examine ourselves in that. Are we trusting in God as it relates to this all-nation mission? Are we trusting God? And it ought to be sweet to our soul that we get to trust in the God that did this first missionary. Look at what he did. Churches planted in unreached people groups. Look at it. And same God is our God. Same God's our Father. Same Holy Spirit dwells in, in members of this church. We're on the same mission. I read the other day, and I'll close here. Uh, John Newton, when he was about close to 70 years old, John Newton, writer of Amazing Grace, uh, a slave ship captain turned converted, turned to pastor. John Newton, when he was almost 70 years old, he said this to William Carey. William Carey, a famous missionary to India. And William Carey was about 31 years old, so he's Young man, John Newton, the elderly man, he says this to him. If God has something for you to accomplish, no power on earth can hinder you. If God has something for you to accomplish, can we trust him? No power on earth, he said, can hinder you. And maybe this influenced William Carey's famous quote when he, sometime after that, said... Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. So I pray that we would do that as a church. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your help, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these directions, Lord, on, on what you would have us to do with our lives. How, would you, how you would have us to spend our energies, God, and our resources. God, help us. God, we want to look back 
whether you give us another few months in this life or whether you give us several more years in this life, God, we want to look back on our life and see all the great things that you you have done. So God, please, through us, through this church, please glorify your name. What a glorious gospel you've given us. What a glorious gospel that we get to preach to a dying world. Thank you for salvation. Thank you, Lord, for the cross. But God, we don't want to just sit in our benefits, Lord. But God, we ask you, please, bless us. Bless us, God. Make your face to shine upon us. That your way might be known in the earth and your saving power among all the nations. God, open doors for your word to, to move forward with power. Open doors for your word in unreached people groups, God. And raise up, raise up men and women to herald your gospel there, God. And put your hand on it and save souls, please, Lord. And I pray that churches would, just like we read in the book of Acts, God, this record that you gave us, God, the churches would pop up everywhere. We love you, Lord, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.